You're listening to the True Life Church Podcast. To learn more about True Life Church, including our service times in Melbourne, Florida, join us online at truelifemelbourne.com or find us on Facebook. Today's message comes from lead pastor Joshua Smith. Hey guys, welcome to week something of Heroes of the Faith series. I've lost count. We spent, I think it was four weeks in, uh, in Daniel. This would be one week in Elijah last week. So I would make this week six, right? Week six. And today we're going to talk about a guy named David. Uh, hands in the house, who knows who a guy in the Bible named David is? Okay, we can't make any assumptions anymore. It's a good number, but not everybody's hand went up. It's good because we're fixing to learn you today. So we're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, it's in the Old Testament. If you want to pull out your Bible, your Bible app, follow along. There's a Bible in the chair, um, uh, one of the chairs in front of your little chair rack. You can pull it out and turn pretty early on in there. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, and then go through. If eventually, you'll find your way to, to 1 Samuel. And a couple things about the book of 1 Samuel. Originally, it was just the book of Samuel. All right? And when it was translated into the Greek, they were like, this is long. Let's do a part one and a part two. Okay, that sounds better, all right? So, and in the, um, in the Jewish um, scriptures, it's just Samuel, all right? But in the American Bible, we have first and second Samuel. Take the story and, and make it a part one and a part two. I think Michael Bay was involved in that to make it a blockbuster summer type of thing, part one and part two. All right, so it was originally one book, and, and Samuel is actually the last of the judges. He's the last judge, and right before this, there's a book um, called... Judges, it's not right before this, right before this is Ruth, but just before this, there's a book called Judges. And, and so we understand a little bit more about uh, David's context. And again, this is important if we're going to know who these heroes of the faith are. Samuel is the last judge, and he is a priest. And this is during a time period where Israel had no king. No official leader. They were still, all their tribes spread out. Because if you remember, there was a guy named Moses. Hopefully, let my people go. And so Moses down in Egypt, right? They, they, God lets them come out of Egypt and, you know, plagues, frogs, bad, ugh, river, water, pff, desert, 40 years. Now, they're coming into promised land. Congratulations, I recap that for you. So Moses, he old, he dies. Joshua, all right? A guy named Joshua and Caleb, they go into and lead Israelites into promised land and try to take over some famous places we may have heard of, like Jericho, all right? And then after that, the tribes just kind of want to stick to themselves. After Joshua dies, there's no real leader to follow after that. And so the tribes are just hanging out by themselves, and it was left for every single one of those tribes to take over the land that was due to be their inheritance. The problem is, and you can actually read this, all of them failed at it. They're like, yay, fight, battle, oh, we're, uh, let's just quit. Oh, this is easy. We got land. Let's just hang out a while. And so they kind of merge with the local people groups, which if you recall God's command back in Numbers, that was a no-no. He said, don't, don't worship their other gods. And that's what starts happening. And so they start to feel this tension, and it's time for some retribution and some leadership. So enter over the period of, uh, I don't know, about 300 years or so, you have these guys named, eventually called judges. And most of them you don't know. Most of them you don't know. And in this time, in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, you don't have to turn there, but we're going to read it. And that generation also were gathered to their fathers, a.k.a. they died, that's Joshua and his people, and there arose another generation 
after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, I don't know about you, but it sounds a little bit like today. There's a generation coming up who does not know of the works of God, who does not know God in the way maybe people did 40 years ago, 100 years ago. I think that's one of the reasons, if not the pivotal reason, why we're seeing our country tear itself apart. At least that's what we're told. And so these judges enter and say, we're going to try to help things get into shape. And I guarantee you've probably heard of one of these and maybe not the other 11. Othniel. Anyone heard of Othniel? Shamgar. That's a cool name. Have you met my son? Shamgar. Um, Deborah. Yeah, female judge. Yeah, we're going to be talking about her later. Gideon. Yeah, okay. A couple people for Gideon. Tola. Jair. Jephthah. Ibzan. Okay. <laughs> we'll talk after. We need to have some kind of confessional or something like that. I'll give you props if you heard of Ibzan, dude. Elon. Not Musk. He's not alive yet. No. Abdon. Samson. Yeah. Jawbone killer. Building destroyer. Yeah. Samson. And then Samuel, the last of the judges, and also now the first of the prophets. Now, he's of the tribe of Levi and his mom and dad. A little backstory. Couldn't have kids for a long time. And it's kind of one of those miraculous, oh, here have a son type of thing. That was really cool, but that's not the story for today. It's a story for another time. So Samuel enters the picture, and he's the prophet and the last judge. And the unruly tribes, they had no unity, and they're like, oh, we need a king. We need someone to lead us. And Israel wanted a king, and God's like, I don't know. I don't, it's not a so good idea. And so Samuel interceded, and they prayed, and God's like, you know what? Okay, we'll give him a king. So he had set up a time with Samuel said, hey, you're going to see this guy walking through a village, and he's going to ask about a donkey. I know it's weird, but he's the guy. Well, fast forward, and a little while later, there's a guy, and we're going to find out about him here in just a second. He's going to get anointed the first king of Israel, and it's not David. It's not David. 1 Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to begin, actually. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, just a short little bit there. It says, there was a man of Benjamin, this is the tribe of Benjamin, uh, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechorah, son of Aphi, and it gives us a whole, you know, background. A Benjamite, tribe of Benjamin, a man of wealth, rich dude, must have taken Financial Peace University. And he had a son whose name was Saul. Now, remember, this is not the Saul from the New Testament whose name was changed to Paul and who writes then most of the uh, Old, or some, most of the New Testament. This is Old Testament. This is other Saul. And Saul was a handsome young man. There was, in fact, there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. Now, I don't know if uh, you want to accolade about your life, but that's a pretty good one. Like, this dude was good looking. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, either he had a neck deformity, or what that really means is that this dude was just massive, tall, hulking, handsome guy. Picture like Brad Pitt's face on Arnold Schwarzenegger's body. I mean, I mean, who's one strapping young dude? Anyway, this is the guy who ends up walking and inquiring about his father's lost donkeys. That's his story there. We'll save for another time. He went looking for his um, donkeys. And so he 
forget the donkeys. Samuel was like, don't worry about that. That's taken care of. And, and God's like, that's the guy we're talking about. Anoint him. So Saul gets anointed as the first king of Israel. Now, he, didn't, uh, he did pretty well. Fought some battles, military victories, and a couple other things. But he did not obey one part of one command to destroy everything of one of his enemies. And he's like, these livestock and these sheep, you know, they look pretty good. Let's bring them back, let's eat them, and let's give a sacrifice to God. And, and Samuel, as a prophet of God and the last judge, reminds Saul that, hey, that's not what God told you to do. And I know I'm recapping a lot, but trust me, we're hanging in there. We're going to get some context because we're going to spend a couple weeks talking about David. And if we don't know some of these things, eh, we're going to be lost. So bear with me. So Saul is very discouraged. He's like, oh no, what have I done? And he tries to make up for it. And so he's pretty much groveling at Samuel's feet saying, please get me back in good favor with the Lord. And Samuel's like, I, I can't do that. You did that. And so Saul's reaching and grabbing, ends up reaching and, and tearing Samuel's robe as he's walking away. And, he's like, and Samuel's like, well, just like that, your kingdom is torn from you and will be given to another. And then Saul goes ape on this poor king that they took back with them. You can read about that in 1 Samuel. That would be chapter 16. And uh, he hacked some former king named Agag to pieces. Ugh. He's kind of upset. He's not king anymore. So now we're going to pick up in this story. So the very first king Israel has had turns out to be not the best one. And we read that the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And it just goes to show us that I think sometimes we think God is like a, maybe, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I definitely think the world does, thinks that God is like a puppet God, manipulating strings and all that kind of stuff. No, God's heart can be broken and bent to, to do things. Now, does he know what's going to happen from beginning to end? Yeah. And this is where our brains can't fathom. But when we pray, God does move. When we talk to God, he does listen. And God's heart can be moved. His word tells us that. And here, God was like, man, Saul, that was a disappointment. He'll still be disappointed. So it's time for a new king. First Samuel, First Samuel chapter 16. So the Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to grieve over Saul, since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Like, I've already chosen who's going to be next. And if you ever wanted to, you know, fast forward in the lineage of time, and if you, if you are familiar with the Christmas story of Jesus' entrance into the world as part God, part man, into the Bethlehem, the city of David, if you're familiar with that story, that's how, he, that's how it's referred to, because David came from Bethlehem. And David would become king and was also a shepherd. So the parallels here are beyond just unique. So just bear with me. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, if he, he's going to kill me. If he hears that I'm going to go anoint another king, I'm going to be in trouble. And the Lord said, you know what? Take a cow with you, take a heifer with you, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'm going to show you what you should do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. That's important. Like, it's the person I choose, not the one you choose. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. 
And the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceably? Because this is a prophet. And the last judge are like, you're not going to go all Samson on us, are you? Like, have we done something? Are you going to break our buildings down? Are you going to pull out that jawbone docky thing and slay a thousand guys? Like, please, not us, not today. He's like, don't worry. Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Come on. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited him to the sacrifice. And when they came, He looked on Eliab, one of Jesse's sons, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, when we say that, why would he think that? Because the first king he already anointed was pretty much Arnold Schwarzenegger's body with Brad Pitt's face. Like, he was a young, good-looking dude, handsome guy. It was like Saul was first king, big, tall, strapping, young gentleman. Surely the next king will look like that. So he has this preconceived notion of what a king looks like. And you and I can get preconceived notions in our brain, right? About maybe what God is going to do or what God's not going to do or how we think our lives should go. And you're like, no, no, no. You've got to look at things differently. We make judgments on people. Remember, Samuel was the last judge in the first of the prophets. He's making a judgment call here. Surely this is going to be the king. And here we have maybe one of the most famous passages, at least to me, in the Old Testament. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. A few weeks, actually the last two weeks in a row, we've talked about how or who many, how many of you or who has a memory verse? Who memorized another verse of Scripture this week? I'm going to ask again. Yes, no hands? One, two, three, four. All right. I'm going to keep asking you. My job to help hold you accountable. More hands next week. Memorize a verse of Scripture. Here's a freebie. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Say that with me. 1 Samuel Okay, we're going to work on the repeating thing. 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verse 7. All right, and we're just going to go technically part B. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is going to be important for us in a moment. Jesse called Abinadab, the next son, and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, not, not that one either. And Jesse made seven of his sons. He had eight sons total. All seven passed before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, like, the Lord hasn't told me any of these are it. And they might be good looking. They might be tall. They might be, you know, handsome. They might, you know, have experience but none of these guys, do you have any other sons? Like, are we missing something? And Jesse's like, well, actually, I do. So there remains yet the youngest, but, but he's keeping the sheep. He's out there being a shepherd. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, and I'm not even going to sit down until he comes. Verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy, but not the good-looking guy. If you ever pictured David as a good-looking guy or the, the famous, um, was it Michelangelo, um, sculpture of David, not that good looking. Like we want to picture someone a lot more rustic and probably short, all right? Here he comes, runt of the litter, tiniest, youngest boy. He's ruddy, 
but had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint that guy, for this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. This is important. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to a place called Ramah. Now after this, what you need to know is that David has already been anointed as future king. Keep this in mind. This is going to be important. David has already been anointed as future king. And shortly after this, not only is he known for being a shepherd, and now in the town of Bethlehem and with his rest of his family, hey, that's future king. And usually the oldest got the inheritance. But in this case, it's the youngest who receives the reward. So there will be some jealousy among his brothers in a short bit. So the youngest receives the reward, and and then Saul, with the Spirit of the Lord gone from him, he starts getting uh, sick and not feeling good. And basically, he's like, "Who? I need someone to help me make me feel better. And someone recommends this kid named David. He's like, I've heard him playing music out there with the harp and the lyre for the sheep. He's a really good instrumentalist, man. He can lay down some jams, have him come into the kingdom, be your personal DJ. That's actually kind of what happens. And so David comes into King Saul's presence, and when Saul doesn't feel good, he's like, play me, play me some tunes, man. David's like, I got you, bro. And he plays some tunes. Pretty much becomes Saul's personal jukebox. All right, when King Saul doesn't feel good, voila. David plays a song. And, and the word tells us that Saul then came to very much appreciate David and made him his own armor bearer. It's going to be important because they're about to go into a battle. See, the Philistines now in chapter 17 rose up and they're like, we're still at war with these people. All these tribes, remember, haven't settled yet. They haven't taken over the land that was promised to them and they've gotten comfortable. So the Philistines, modern day Palestine, or in that people group, they're still at war with each other today. Israel and Palestine is the modern day carrying through through thousands of years of Philistines and Israelites. Palestine, Philistine, you're tracking with me, right? This, you know I mean, this is not made of you. This is history, all right? This is accurate. So they're still at war with each other because they still didn't do what God had told them to do. And of the Philistines, there was this really tall guy, nine feet tall. And what do we call something that's really big? Goliath, right? Guess what? That's what it, his name was. He even had a brother also called uh, Goliath. So how don't you get that? Oh, Goliath, a Gittite, oh, a different guy. So Goliath actually probably had some form of gigantornism, like some really big, tall dude. And I saw a report this past week. I was trying to do research for the message, and they went down the deep end of, like, DNA and genetics to explain who, why, who, what, and how they had that because one of his other brothers had six fingers and six toes. Like, it's weird, really weird stuff. So it's probably a genetic defect, all right? I'm not going to bore you with that. I got bored. So don't worry about that. But it's kind of cool, all right? So you, if you're really bored later, you can look that up and like type in like, you know, Goliath, genetic defect. And you can start reading the scientific stuff that they came up with and then go to sleep. You may already be asleep now, so I'll save you the trouble. So the, the, Goliath is this nine foot tall guy and he's got a crazy awesome spear on his back and he's got his shield alone takes a, another guy to just lift it. And he's got some awesome looking sword and his chain mail weighs 126 pounds. Just his chainmail alone. 
Just walk around some big dude, nine foot tall, crazy cool armor, best fighter of all Philistines. And he marches out and says, you know what, forget these armies that have gathered here in the valley of Elah. I'm going to challenge one guy. Instead of all of us fighting, I fight one guy. And if I win, y'all become my slaves. And if you win, we'll become your slaves. Because he's so confident and so cocky that no one can beat him because he's a nine-foot-tall dude. Everyone else, is, he says, like grasshoppers to him. Well, David, already anointed King David, but not king yet, that still kept hush-hush, is going back and forth bringing food to his brothers on the battlefield. Remember, he's Saul's armor-bearer, so he's going back and forth. And every day, the soldiers from both sides, they go out and do their little war chant. You know, if you've ever seen the movie Braveheart, they go out there, imagine it without the kilts, and they're just yelling and screaming at each other, ah, ah, ooh, marching out every day and just trying to make themselves look as big, as bad as possible. And then it ends up, Goliath comes out, and then all the Israelites get afraid, and no one fights that day. And they, they do this for over a month. Of 40 days, this is going on, and finally, David's doing runs back and forth uh, between carrying food through Bethlehem to this valley of Elah, it was about 12, I think, miles away. And, and he finally gets there. He's like, dude, is anyone going to do anything about this? This dude comes out here every day, and I'm not afraid of this guy. What's, what's going to be done for the guy who does this? Like, he's probably going to, you know, get riches and wealth, and the king's going to give his daughter. And it's like, they was like, I'm about due for a marriage. That sounds cool, man. More importantly, this guy named Goliath, regardless of how big, he's offending God because he's He's cursing. He's making fun of our God, and I'm not going to put up with it. Is anyone going to do anything about that? No? Look around, 40,000 guys? No? Okay, you know what? I'm going to do something about it. So he goes, and the word, he eventually ends up before the king. Remember, he's the armor bearer. And we can pick up here in the story, in verse 36 of 1 Samuel chapter 17. And he's basically giving his resume, because at this point, he's trying to say why he's worthy of going and fighting this guy named Goliath. And Saul's like, dude, you're a shepherd boy. I like you a lot, and you're great at the jams. You're great at the tunes. Like, I'm glad you brought your guitar, but we don't need a guitar. This is war, okay? So just hang out. David's like, I'm not going to put up with someone making fun of God this way. So he stands in the gap where no one else would. He says, you know what? I've been a shepherd for a few years now. And when a lion came up, I killed the lion. And when a bear came up to try to get the sheep, I killed the bear. And I killed the lion and I killed the bear because I trusted in God. And the same God who delivered me from the bear and from the lion is going to deliver me and then us from this little chump in the field named Goliath. So they try to get him dressed in his armor. So Saul says, you know, go and the Lord be with you. I think that's like a two meaning phrase. I think it's like, go and the Lord be with you. Because like, he's just a small, tiny, ruddy dude. Got to go fight big, tall Goliath. I think the other part of it is like, go, go be with you. Because remember what the deal was, is that if they lost, the Philistines won and would take all of them slaves or kill them. So everything is riding on the shoulders of most likely this teenage boy. And they try to put the armor on him, and it looks ridiculous. It's like hanging down by his feet. Because remember, he's ruddy. He's not tall. So his armor's hanging down by his feet. He can't even, like, pick up the sword. He's like, I've not really used one of these, and the helmet's probably too big on his head. He's like, I can't see. This is not going to work. These aren't the tools I'm familiar with. 
So what does he do? He takes off the armor. I can't go in these. David takes it off. And he took his staff, which is what he needed for shepherding. Took a stick, essentially with a crook in it. Tall stick. He took a stick in his hand. And he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. Because remember, just one dude just took to just even hold the shield. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he, he disdained him because he was just but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I love how they squeaked that in there again, right? And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Because remember, he's holding a shepherd's staff. Like, what is going on here? I'm wearing armor and I got a spear, like an awesome looking spear between my shoulders on my back strapped to me. Like, I can just poke you before you even get close to me. You did, you know. I got a big old shield, I got a big old sword, I got 126 pounds of chain mail armor and then bronze things all above that and a helmet. Like, you're going to come at me with a stick? The Philistine said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Like, you're going you're gonna to get it. And David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin. Like, you come armed, Goliath, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Like, you've been making fun of God for far too long. I'm going to put an end to it. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I'm going to give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and with spear. For the battle is the Lord's. And if you need memory verse part two, here you go. The battle is the Lord's. It's not ours. We, Paul writes later that our battle isn't against the flesh and blood, all right? But against the spiritual realms and the things that we cannot see, this battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. That made Goliath happy or mad? You choose. I'm going to go with mad for a thousand, please, Alex. Daily double. Okay, so Goliath gets upset. Guess what? Microphone comes down from the sky in the valley of Elah. Let's get ready to rumble. And it comes down, right? No, this is made up. Obviously, there's a microphone then. I got you, Ben. Just in case anyone was confused, microphones were not around in, this would be uh, about 1,000 B.C. 1,000 B.C. Okay, so the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine, and David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone, and he slung it, and he struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone... sank deep into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine, and he killed him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. And then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword, Goliath's sword, and drew it out of its sheath and (coughs) killed him, got off his head with it. And now when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And from there on, it's a, yay, kids are present. You can read that on later. They're adults. Earmuffs. Now, how many have heard this story before? Yeah? It's a pretty familiar story as far as Bible stories go. But I think we've forgotten a few things today. I want to take a different look 
at this story. A couple weeks ago, I was uh, just moving things in my office. And some days, I'm an idiot. And this was one of those days. And my office here at church, I was moving things. And, and, you know, one of the colors here we have at True Life Church is this beautiful, rich, navy blue. And I had a gallon of that paint. And in my office, I dropped a gallon of that paint. And the lid popped off. The paint was so thick, I took one of those drywall spatulas, and I'm, I'm scooping it, picking up the floor, putting it back in the can. That would have been a great idea, except I wasn't painting. I was just carrying things. So a couple of friends from church here, you know, I, I, I used the phone a friend, call a lifeline. I used all the tricks and came down, we had a shop vac, and we're doing wet, soapy water, and I think we went to, through like 18 rolls of the Quicker Picker Upper, which, by the way, is a misnomer, and, um, and just as much as we could to try to get navy blue paint out of carpet that's just like this over there in, in my church office. And we spent hours doing this. Thankfully, they're great people, and they came down and they helped people from within this church. Thank you. And after many hours of warm, soapy water and shop vacuuming things up, we're like, okay, we think it looks pretty good. Okay, it's still wet. We'll see how it looks tomorrow. I came back the next day, and I walk in, and it's like, oh, my goodness. It's still blue. And the, the tune was coming back in my head, you know, from Eiffel 65, Europop album. I'm blue. Whatever the words are, right? But we were listening to that jam while we were trying to clean up. I'm blue. And I'm... We had to lighten the mood somehow. So I'm staring at, at, at paint all over the floor. And like, you know what? This isn't going to work. Um, our church is broke. So I'm like, I'm going to go get new flooring. So then I had another friend came out. We ripped up all the carpet from there. And we put in new flooring. Yay! New flooring in the office. I like it a lot better now. In case you want an office tour, you're welcome to go poke your head in, you know, right after the, and, and, and see the digs. Regardless, as I was setting things back up in the office because all the furniture had to come out and then back in with the floor, I've always been a guy who oddly enough, liked rocks. Anyone else like rocks in here? I see it in my son, too, because for some, like, we'll go to the avenues in Vieira, and I, well, I'm getting ready to put him in the car, and he's holding a rock and, and a piece of bark. Like, how long have you had that? You're just carrying it around. He's like, these are my treasures. I'm like, okay, and I just put him in the car with him. I'm like, well, take it home, you know, just carry I like this rock, and I would do that as a youth. I don't know why, but some, certain rocks had certain meanings to me, and I would collect rocks, I had a rock collection, I'm that nerd. <laughs> this is all true, sadly. And so I had a kind of weird fascination with geodes and, and with rocks to try to find all that kind of stuff out. And even through, you know, uh, 10 years in the Methodist church of, of, we set up an altar table, we don't have that in this church, we're, we're not that we're not that way, but I would take rocks and we like we decorate the altar table and I get artsy with rocks and candles and things. Different size of candles make it interesting. And you may notice today here there, there's some rocks up here. There it is. I, I like rocks. Um, I think David we're talking about probably had uh, a need to like rocks, and we're going to talk about why. Because as I was setting up my office, I grabbed five rocks 
And we still have rocks from a sermon that Tony Eubanks gave over a year ago. And that was about letting go of the rock, drop the rock, and forgive somebody. So we've had a whole bunch of rocks in our, in our church office hanging out back there because all that means is that people still need to forgive people. So there's a bunch of rocks down the hallway. So I grabbed a few and I set them up in my table in my office. And for the last three or four weeks, I've just been gradually just constantly staring at these five stones. And there's an intentional reason I grabbed five stones. And if we know the story of David and Goliath today, hopefully you know why we grabbed five stones, yes? How many did, they, did David grab? He went to the brook and he grabbed how many stones? So we need to talk a little bit about some stones here, all right? David would have been an expert at a stone and a sling. If you don't know what a sling is, I think it's ironic today that the device we are using to stream our services is called Sling Studio. So if you're watching online, you are now involved. called Sling Studio. And it's not a TV streaming service either. But a sling was about a three-foot-long piece of leather wound up together and had a little pouch at the end. And David would have been an expert at slinging stone. This is probably how he killed the lion and how he killed the bear. And an elite stone slinger could throw a stone over 400 yards in excess of 60 to 70 miles an hour. Like, we think society has advanced to a day and age, like we have bullets and tanks and missiles and guns or whatever, but for much of human history, the rock was the best weapon. I know it sounds like a lot, but they would take this rock and they would make it into a little pointy triangle thing, and they'd put that rock on a stick, and then that rock became an arrowhead. All right, and this is a little bit later, but oftentimes through even fighting the, you can read historical accounts of even the Roman Empire being afraid of rock throwers. They weren't afraid of missiles like arrows and other things. They weren't afraid of burning oil. They could, you know, a lot of things, this is the Iron Age, they could, an iron pit tip would bend and they could kind of pull it out. They were afraid of rocks because even through armor, a good rock throw could cause internal damage and bleeding that they couldn't fix and that's it for you. Furthermore, it could break bones, you know, and it's like that generic scream that's in every Star Wars movie and others, you know, there's that scream there for you today. So they were, a stone slinger was a very specialized skill. He's like the sniper. And there are stories, historical accounts of at, in excess of 250 and 300 yards, these guys could say like, I want to hit that guy's right eye, boom, right eye. Like, they were that accurate, right? They're discovering even today uh, historical and archaeological digs around certain areas. The tribe of Benjamin had elite, elite stone slingers. If you want to take this a step further, you can read about that in Judges chapter 20 and 1 Chronicles chapter 12. Many Israelites were experts at throwing a rock with accuracy. And David would have been one of those guys. And it was very dangerous if you got hit by one of those rocks. We see baseball players, right? They'll throw a ball that's actually cushioned. They'll throw a ball 70, 80, 90 miles per hour. And they're like, ow, 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 right? Imagine a rock. Let's think about that for a second. Going just as fast from a farther distance. Crazy dangerous. And the stone, I'm going to put a a myth to rest here. The stone most likely wasn't slung 
above the head. Now, when we tell the story of David and Goliath, we often think like, okay, we, he's slinging a stone. No, man, that's a rodeo. You know, we're confused with what, what's going on here. Have you ever seen someone play softball? Girls college softball, collegiate softball? And they do this one little boom, and they throw it out there like that, right? That ball is going crazy fast. That's the way they would sling the stones. Because if we think about horizontal versus vertical, if I'm slinging it this way, I have to let go at the exact time that that rock, and now I've got curve to it, right? So my rock's not going to go exactly straight. They would sling it this way because now I'm going direct. And if you're into marksmanship or accuracy, you know what I'm talking about here. You can just go straight down this line and I'm more likely to hit whatever's going down this line, higher or lower, still good, versus left and right, if my goal is to hit a target. So they would take one or two slings, and let that rock go at 60, 70 miles an hour. That'll do some damage, right? And so this rock, David takes five stones. If you're following along, I want to read this one more time because this is important. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 40. If you're following along, read with me. I invite you to be allowed here. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose how many? Five. What type of stones? Smooth stones from the brook. And he put them in his where? Shepherd's pouch. The sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. A couple things we need to remember. Number one, a rough stone doesn't go in the bag. Oftentimes, when we read historical stories like this or biblical stories like this, we try to personalize it for ourselves and put ourselves into this story. And one of the great Christian misconceptions is that we are, quote-unquote, David in the story of David and Goliath. And you may have heard uh, pastors or other people like, well, I, you, just t- you take down your giants. You take them down. That's not up to us. We don't do the giant taking down thing. If anything, do you know what we are in the story of David and Goliath? We're going to personalize it for ourselves today. Guess what we are? At best, we are the stone. And not even all of us are the stone because a rough stone doesn't get put in the bag. Now these stones are actually much smaller than the ones they would have used. And this is river stones. These are kind of flat-ish. They actually had slinging stones. And the goal would be to find about a tennis to baseball to softball-sized stone as perfectly or as close to round as you could get. These are flatter, right, because these are decorative. So there it is. Get a good idea of that. A rough stone doesn't go in the bag. Now, if we are the stone, what does that mean for us? Got to be smooth. How do we be smooth, Tony? Reading the word, getting closer to God? What else? Yeah, kid who knows Ibzan. Okay. Praying. If I had a rough stone and I wanted to make it a smooth stone, what would I need to do? Polish it for a long time. Rub it down, take off all the rough edges. And if you and I are wanting to be used by God in a powerful way, it's going to require some rough edges to come off of our life. 
through meekness, through humility. And we don't like that because humility is, I mean, if we're taking pieces off, it's going to hurt. Oh, there went a piece of me. Yeah, but you're going to be better after. Our spiritual maturity and humility and our spiritual strength matters more than we know. If we're going to be a smooth stone used for God. Now, if you think about this too, this is where this kind of gets a cool story. If you imagine from God said, let there be light and boom, and the creation of time and light and space and earth and matter. Fast forward through time. This little rock, you can imagine a time lapse, something like that, sitting in the brook and slowly, slowly, slowly being worn down to where one day this rock's story intersects with David's hand and gets pulled out of the brook. How long did that take? Crazy long time for that stone to be in the right place at the right time to be used by the king's hand. A rough stone doesn't go in the bag, and there are things today in your life and in mine that we need to let God polish in our lives. And you already know what they are, but you got to be willing to be humbled to go through the process. Point number two, David took how many stones? How many stones did he throw? Not every stone gets thrown. He took five. Only needed one. In Southern speak, I like to use a phrase that if the grass is greener on the other side of the field, it's because it has more fertilizer. That's poo. Sometimes I think we can get so distracted about what's going on in other people's lives, even spiritually. What are they doing? What are they not doing? Oh, they shouldn't have done that. Oh, I never would have done that. Oh, I'm so much better than they are. I prayed today. They didn't have a memory verse. Check it. I got mine. I win. We get so distracted about what's going on in other people's lives that we risk, quote-unquote, if following the metaphor, falling out of the bag. You tracking with me? We're trying to get a peek at how another stone may or may not be used, and we risk falling out of the shepherd's pouch. We lose connection with God the Father, the King, when we're so distracted trying to find out what else is, is going on instead of saying, this is where God has me, and I'm good. Jesus tells us this later in the New Testament, like, stop worrying about the, the, the speck in someone else's eye when you've got a plank in your own. Not every stone gets thrown. And this is discouraging for us if we're not spiritually mature enough. Because you're like, but God wore me down over time. And I've got talents. I've got skills with a Z. I'm that good at doing something. And I want to use that. I don't want to use that the way I want to use that. I've been waiting in a brook a long time for this moment, and I got put in the bag. God, why didn't you throw me and someone else does the thing that I wanted to do? Someone else gets maybe the glory you selfishly wanted for yourself. Someone else does the thing that you thought you were supposed to do. And the whole time, God's like, I never told you that's what you're going to do. We need to be comfortable where we're at. And that leads us to number three. So David took how many stones again? And how many stones did he throw? Which, if we're following our math today, leaves how many stones? The other four stones are still where? They're still in the shepherd's pouch with the king. 
You see, being with the king should be enough for us. Now, we don't read about what happens to these stones later. This story is not about the stones. This story is about what God, through David, does with the stones. And if we're going to find ourselves in the story today, we need to have a wake-up call. Because if being with God is not enough for us, ain't nothing going to satisfy you in this life. Nothing. And you're going to wander throughout your life trying to find something else that will fulfill, and it won't. One of my greatest concerns today is that there's a whole bunch of Christians who are trying to force their own rock to be thrown. Instead of being with the king in the shepherd's pouch, God should be enough for us, right? God should be enough for us.